0: Hello, and welcome to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. In Her Room is supported by listeners like you. Contribute to keeping the show ad-free at patreon.com slash Room, or visit our website to make a one-time donation. Your support keeps women's voices on the air. This week's guest on In Her Room is Renee Dow. Trained as a modern dancer in the Martha Graham method, Renee Dow took her love of dancing and movement of her body to the page, writing words with a lyricism that carries us through stories across time and space. Living a bi-continental life with her husband and dachshund Tootsie, she explores the world around her Rooted in place and in presence. Renee, it is so great to have you on the show today. Thank you for being here.
1: Thank you so much, Sarah. I'm really, I'm really thrilled to speak with you today.
0: I'm so excited to have you on the show. I'm especially thrilled to talk about your book, Body of a Dancer, which for me was one of the first literary nonfiction books that opened up that genre to me beyond memoir and sort of narrative journalism to find that in between of really telling a beautiful story and weaving in truth and fact and creating something magical. And so I'm excited to talk with you about that book, your work at Essay as the managing editor, and so much more. Thank you,
1: and I, I love what you say about Body of a Dancer. That's something that I was striving for, not to write a memoir only from my own perspective, but, in, but to include a lot of other voices.
0: Absolutely. I'd love to know, what is writing to you? Writing is several
1: things to me, of course. One of the things that is, I, I think of writing as intimately connected to reading. So I think of writing and reading as creating possibility spaces. Mm. And I think that to do that, we have to explore both in our reading and in our writing in order to create these spaces of possibility and imagination and um, communication. I also think of writing as listening to the self and others. At a certain point in my life, writing was very much about processing, processing my own emotions and my thoughts and understanding what I was feeling and thinking and dreaming. Over over all of that, over all those things, writing has always been about creating art, about a process and a result that lasts longer than uh, performance, longer than live performance, mm-hmm. something that's, I, I want to say, an artifact, um, but, the, but the book, of course, now we have electronic books, so those are more uh, virtual, right? But I, I really, if I think of a book in terms of a printed bound thing of beauty, I think of that as a, a work of art, and crafting art is very much what writing is about for me.
0: That's beautiful. And I like the way that you contrast writing with live performance and the permanence of that. You are trained as a modern dancer and you, your book is really about that experience of both training to dance and being a dancer and also sort of the evolution of that part of your life and the the journey of it, which as a contrast to something like a live dance performance, there is this sense of permanence, but there is also a sense of, I think, timelessness as well that comes through in your book and in many of the things you've written, where it is sort of like sitting down to a live performance that isn't specifically like a pre-recorded performance, but experiencing it in that moment for the first time. Um, And I think that there might be some elements of your training as a dancer that come through in your writing. And I'd love to know more about your thoughts on that.
1: It's something I think about uh, all the time. It's one of the reasons I wanted to become a writer as a a dancer. People say once a dancer, always a dancer. I don't feel like a dancer right now because I'm not in dance classes. I'm not teaching dance. I'm very much sitting and, and writing and Teaching writing, teaching English composition. But in dance, when I was a dancer, I felt like everything was so um, ephemeral. Like it, we would we would rehearse maybe for a month and then we would do a performance and then everything was over. And I wanted, I wanted to hold on to those moments. I wanted them to last longer. And I wanted um, to become a writer so that I could create something that would be longer lasting than performance. Mm-hmm. Now we have more video technology, so performances can be captured. And there's something about, about live performance that just it, it can't be exchanged with anything else. But for me as a working um, craft person, with dance, I got really frustrated that everything was so uh, limited mm-hmm. in time and space to that one performance. And, in writing, I wanted to find a way to record those performances and to record that time and place so that it would last longer. Well, mm-hmm.
0: and I think also there's this way that that the skills you cultivate as a dancer and and having a a body based physical craft, those movements and those lessons translate into how you cultivate the written
1: word. I think so, and I think that sense of movement, I I think a lot about choreography and a lot about dance choreography when I'm writing. How is something moving in a scene, or how is it moving across the page, or how is it uh, moving together? How are disparate parts going to come together that you might not expect would come together? And one of the things that I really think about with writing when I when I first started to sit down, I was used to dancing about six to eight hours a day. And for some reason, I had neglected to realize what a shock that would be to my body mm-hmm. to sit, actually. Now, you know, that was probably 1997 uh, or to the year 2000 when I really started sitting and writing all day instead of dancing. Now, I really think of writing as a physical act. I think of it as involving one's whole body. And I think that makes sense from um, a place of thinking of the imagination as um, causing muscles to twitch and work in ways that we, we maybe wouldn't think of if we're just sitting still. But in fact, we're not sitting still. We're, we're moving constantly through our whole bodies particularly if we're thinking of a whole integration that we want to bring to the page and the written page. I also really think about the the diligence that's required of dance. Um, You know, you you have to take a class, you take daily class, you show up. There's a persistence and a diligence and that's limited to a body time. It's limited to the time that your body can last, really. And if you injure yourself, the, that time that you have is cut short. With writing, I just loved the idea that writing is something we can do our whole lives. Mm-hmm. And that um, that physicality can be brought to the page and live on the page. And it doesn't have to. Writing doesn't have to end because of anything. It can last forever. Mm, absolutely.
0: You mentioned writing and teaching writing. and. You currently live both in Idaho and in Switzerland, and have have an existence with your fabulous Dachshund Tutsi as being bicontinental. And I'm curious the impact that has had on your writing life.
1: At first, it had a it's it's actually had a, a, a halting influence on my writing life. At first, I really uh, was kind of excited to explore a new culture and to write. And then gradually, I started to feel uh, much more isolated. and that actually moving and being bicontinental had kind of uh, stopped my writing in a way that I didn't expect. Mm-hmm. Um and I think a lot of it has to do with the you know if I go out and I overhear language, uh, we're in the southern portion of Switzerland and the the language here is Italian. Well, I'm a beginning Italian speaker and I've had to learn Italian. And when I overhear Italian, I don't catch, I might catch a word that I know, but I certainly can't overhear conversations. Mm -hmm. And I found that uh, to be isolating. When I go to the States and I'm in Idaho, I spend a lot of time going out and um, listening to conversations that people are having because I'm so excited to hear a language I understand and to write down thoughts and inspirations and sentences. You know, even if it's just partially heard phrases, uh, something like, you know, you you walk by someone in the airport and they say, what was mom doing this morning? It's just so exciting. Like, what was she doing this morning? Whereas if I hear something like that here, I don't necessarily even know what the person is saying. That's starting to get a little better. And um, I I, I think though that I didn't expect that my writing would be, that it would be so challenging to come back back to the page and write from that bicontinental perspective. And I think it's a matter of disorientation, uh, somewhat of displacement, And all of that I hesitate to say because I'm incredibly lucky to be here. I am incredibly lucky to experience another culture and to hike in the Alps. And it's something that I, I really felt almost ashamed to talk about, that I felt this intense disorientation, especially in relation to my own work. I've started to break through that, but it was it was something that um was almost shocking to me. Um
0: mm. you mentioned being in the south of Switzerland where uh you are among the Alps and also your home in Idaho is also in the mountains. It's true. And I'm curious if that was intentional or if that is purely accidental and if there is an attraction to, for you to mountainous places?
1: I love this question because I, I moved to Switzerland to follow uh, my husband. So I say I, I moved across a continent and an ocean for love. And it's uh, just pure chance that we ended up in Switzerland. He, uh, my husband got a position here after his PhD, he's an electrical engineer, and he uh, had a postdoctoral position here, which is now a permanent research position. He's a research professor, and the similarity between the mountains in Idaho and the mountains here—we're really in the foothills—and we have, uh, we can access the Alps um, within, you know, an hour and a half. We can be hiking in the Alps, and I kind of crack up about it because I'm actually really scared of heights and I love hiking um, and I love walking and I love physical movement and it's something that is uh, necessary to me but there are many many hikes we do that are challenging for me because of my uh, fear of uh, heights especially combined with open spaces and I just think it's so funny that I that I live in Switzerland and that One of the things I've had to confront is this uh, fear um, head on. And in Idaho, for some reason, the mountains, they aren't as craggy and I don't get as scared, though I still have to confront uh, some of that fear of heights in Idaho. But I think the mountains are a little less uh, spectacular than they are here. And I don't end up coming around A corner on a trail and having a drop-off that uh, startles and stuns me and uh, makes me start hyperventilating. (laughs) My husband's been really great about helping me work through that fear because I get this very physical sensation when I'm close to the edge or close to a cliff. I get a a very rooted uh, grounding sensation in my pelvis and I can tell when a drop-off is coming up, and we figured out that my body was telling me when something was coming. And so uh, we both started paying attention to those body signals. And since then, it's been much more manageable to hike and not end up in tears.
0: I love that. And I love that it is a sense of of grounding and and your body really informing and compelling you to, to feel that rootedness as a contrast to feeling the fear of heights and the, the drop-off and the, the sense that of, of being unmoored that can come with a fear of heights. Exactly. I would love it if you might read from Body of a Dancer for us.
1: I would love to, I'm going to read um, a second act. The book is separated in acts, and so I'll read from act two. And each act has a quotation, this quotation uh, from Body of a Dancer, act two, the quotation is from Martha Graham. Practice means to perform in the face of all obstacles, some act of vision, of faith, of desire. Practice is a means of inviting the perfection desired. Act Two, Graham Crackers. The first day of the Martha Graham Center for Contemporary Dance Summer Intensive, there is a large spot of dried and crusted blood in the center of the main studio floor. Advanced dancers doing sparkles on the diagonal across the dance floor jump before the blood and land afterward. Take to the air, yells Pearl Lay. She is petite, elderly, full of spine. Her gray black hair is pulled with a small pink bow into a bun at the base of her neck. One bare but young woman lands smack on the crusted blood. Claire is usually a very careful, very precise dancer. The entire line of dancers, each waiting a turn, cringes. Although the floor and center exercises took up an hour and a half of the two hour class, no one cleaned up the blood. Christy is absent. Christy doesn't mind cleaning up blood and sometimes checks the studio floor before class. Spilled blood is a regular occurrence in a gram class. Since modern dancers dance barefoot, often the skin tears or burns from the pressure of contact with the floor. If there's blood, Christy gets the rubbing alcohol and paper towel and wipes up the floor. She never uses gloves. Christy also goes barefoot at Grateful Dead concerts. It's a bold move to be absent for the first day of summer intensive, especially when company auditions will take place at the end of the six-week session. Absence means weakness. Survival of the fittest is taken to new heights in the Graham school. You must not simply survive. You must thrive or perish. If you perish, it's your own fault. The lipid content of your cellular structure is your fault too. It takes 10 years to make a Dancer, says Martha. Martha has been dead for two years, but summer intensive is still sacred. Pearl Lang teaches the composition class. It happens right after technique class. The dancers make up stupid, twisty movements and call the amalgamation of their favorite moves choreography choreography. Always one idiot dancer puts in a grand jeté, legs split, leaping high across the floor, and always Pearl takes it out. Yes, dear, Pearl says, I know you love to leap, but show me something you don't love to do and make it original. In Martha's studio, there is the scarred and ancient grand piano in the corner, the double doors that open, into Martha's courtyard and her tree, the high narrow windows, fluorescent lights and fan overhead and the old bar with braces that are pulling off the wall. The braces on the bar really need to be fixed. The bar cannot withstand the pull of weight for much longer. Back in Martha's days, teachers would punch you in the gut to be sure you knew the real feeling, real feeling, real sensation. Art is no substitute for the real. You're a bird, an eagle, the teacher Jacqueline Buglisi screams. Let go of that bar. Fly. Several dancers actually let go of the bar and fall on their butts. They are the ones who always follow directions, especially when screamed in high pitch. If you hadn't been so terrified of Miss Buglisi, you might have laughed. The ceiling is too low for flying anywhere, soon the bar will pull completely off the wall, and the humidity is so great that by the middle of class you want to plop down to the floor like the idiot dancers who actually let themselves fall on their tailbones when they didn't have to do it. Miss Buglisi had of course been speaking metaphorically. You grab the bar and pull away the way Martha herself might have grabbed Eric Hawkins if she wasn't slapping him. Your butt tight and head bowed, your back curving and your abdomen hollowed out. Please let this class be over soon, you think. In Graham, you hardly ever get to use the bar, so hanging on for dear life should be a treat. We're living a long, long way from bumfuck. Kansas now, girls, Amanda announces in the dressing room after class. She is taking off her sweat-soaked leotard and tights, exchanging them for a lycra unitard hand-sewn by Arturo. The dressing room is a long, thin room on the second floor floor of the Graham Center. And Amanda says, where the hell is Christy to wipe up that blood? Christy went to visit her sister in Hawaii and phoned to say her plane had been delayed, but nobody believed her. Everyone suspects she stayed in Hawaii with her sister to smoke more pot on the beach and soak up the sun. Deadheads are potheads. Everyone knows she isn't coming back and they are glad, one down. But Amanda says there's always another to take her place, except there isn't. If you consider it, life doesn't refill people who go missing. Christie couldn't stick it out. And now the question is who will willingly take on the role of wiping up spilled blood in the center of the room before Pearl Lang's composition class? This summer intensive, there are dancers from Croatia and Brazil, Germany and Texas. Other states are represented too. There are no dancers from the African continent. Amanda is from Great Britain. There were three dancers from Taiwan. Kun Yang is one of them, but he won't make the company because of his height. He's too short. There are four from Brazil, six from Italy. Italy. Italians really love Graham. The American dancers say the Italians love Graham's pathos, her abdominal contraction. The Italian dancers say the Americans love Graham's control, her stately walk. The Italian men love sleeping with the American men, and the American women want to sleep with the Italian men. In the dressing room, Amanda says it the most plainly, Christy couldn't take it. The dancers all nod. They can take it. The spine is your body's tree of life, says Martha. One, you're down. Two, scoot your feet around and under and wrench yourself up to standing. Don't feel the tear across your knee. Ignore it. It isn't happening. Three, you're up. And again, Pearl yells. Don't think, because you haven't been taught to think. Do it, whatever they want. Again and again, all art is the act of showing up. You've been taught that a dancer lives to dance. Movement to a dancer is like breathing to mortal souls. You must bleed, bleed now. You've heard it so many times. It doesn't matter if you believe it yourself. The body is aching, but you don't feel it now. You'll feel it later when you can barely lift a hand to turn on the faucet. To fill the bathtub with water and you can barely lift the box of Epsom salts and pour it into the tub. Whatever gender you are sleeping with at the time brought home the Epsom salts. Special treat. You dump the whole box into the bath and the carton falls in two because you're so tired you didn't hold it tightly enough. There is only tomorrow in the world to dance because goals are too far out of reach so use up everything now. Somehow Somehow you lift your leg over the rim of the tub, and though earlier in the day, you could fall to the floor in one count, now it takes you eight counts to get your body lowered into the body. You sit, holding your knees, crunched up to your chest in a little huddle. It hurts too much to lean back, so you just sit there in a little ball in the water. If you are lucky, your sexual partner comes into the bathroom and clucks a little and picks up a washcloth and washes your back gently, ever so gently. After the bath, you don't have sex. You never have sex. You're too tired to have sex and too sore to have sex. And who the hell wants to explore the body at night when you've been exploring the body all day and you know where every little muscle is that isn't doing what it should? The words of the raunchier gram teachers yelling at you reverberate in your brain all night as you lie there and stare at the ceiling. Have an orgasm, then you'll know life. None of you know life. Where is your contraction? Where is your orgasm? You are all frigid. Only the lucky ones have sex. The chosen ones, as Martha would say, the athletes of the gods. These are the true purveyors of Martha's house, the house of pelvic truth. Oh, but there is no question the will is always there, even in your bed at night, even if you just open your legs, the will to move with power and force and beauty. Martha says she never sought sought beauty, even though the grotesque is beautiful. When the teacher walks into Martha's studio, all the students stand quickly and pull the feet together and squeeze the buttocks together and keep the arms long, palms in against the thighs. Hopefully the thighs are not feeling or looking too big this morning. The hair should be already pulled tightly back and away from the face. It's okay if it's in a ponytail. No bun heads here, though you might act like one. One, you're up standing for the teacher. Please sit, Pearl says, sometimes offering a little bow. Two, you sit. And, she says, The piano player begins banging out whatever he's banging out this morning, and you are bouncing up and down, pushing your head to your feet. Bounce, bounce, bounce. Breathings, yells Pearl. You breathe, then stop breathing. This is how you start every day. For blood, for art, for Martha. Thank you so much. Thank you for asking me to read.
0: I am so glad you read that part. It's one of my favorites in the book, though I have to admit that I'm a pretty big fan of the whole thing, so it would be hard to pick just one.
1: And I, it, it just warms my heart to, to have a reader and, and to speak with you. I One of the things when I was writing the book, I didn't realize how incredibly special it would be to speak with readers after the book was published. Mm. It's such a delight. And I love that, the, that people find the book when they find it and I get to speak with them still. Thank you for reading it.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. I'd love to know the best advice you've ever received.
1: Oh, the best advice I've ever received uh, was from my mom. My mom was a writer. She passed away uh, five years ago. And my mom said, um, butt on chair, pen in hand, paper on desk, and write. And then later she said, keep writing. And I think it really points to the work. It's about the work, it's about doing. Work
0: and isn't that why we're writers to do the work?
1: Isn't it? I I really think it is. I I really think that the other that there's there are so many there's so many layers of writing that one can get involved with or be pulled in different direction. And at, at, it's really about coming back to that page. I think
0: absolutely. I agree. I want to shift gears a little bit, and I want to talk about your work as the managing editor of Assay, a journal of nonfiction studies. Now, unlike most literary journals, Assay is not a literary journal per se. It really focuses on the critical and the pedagogical aspects of creative nonfiction scholarship and is a place to read and think and talk about what it means to write creative nonfiction. I'd love to know how you got started with the journal and what it means for you to be working in that less literary and more pedagogical aspect of creative nonfiction when you're also teaching and writing it.
1: It's been really fascinating to me. I I became involved with Essay because the editor Karen Babine who started essay asked me to come on board and um, I, I really felt drawn to it because I was interested in thinking about craft and thinking about scholarship and I wanted to fill in some of those gaps that I felt in my own knowledge. So just from a personal educational standpoint, I, I was reading essay and was really interested in what people were writing and how people were uh, thinking about uh, scholarship. And it's also uh, an avenue that's very difficult for me, um, but then I haven't felt a lot of confidence uh, personally in terms of my own personal writing, in ter- terms of, Um, speaking about pedagogy and how it is that I approach uh, teaching English composition. Those are all kind of uh, areas where I've had to gather my own uh, reading. I I have an MFA, but I don't have a a PhD. And from my MFA, I had a six-week course in teaching English composition, I know that uh, many people don't have training as a teacher, but I really felt the lack in training as a, as a teacher and, and also the lack in terms of thinking about my own knowledge of scholarship as an English composition teacher, which I've been doing online for about eight years now at two colleges at North Idaho College and Casper College. So it was kind of this wonderful confluence of uh, Karen asking me to come on board and also me searching for more um, reading and investigating uh, sort of deeper uh, meanings of what it is, why we write, how we write, what it means to write, uh, and lots of different ways of approaching that writing. Uh, not just from a creative standpoint, but from a more critical standpoint. And I think Essay say is filling a, a vital need in the field of nonfiction studies. Um, it's really a journal um, that is needed at this time uh, for, for critical scholarship and to facilitate all facets of nonfiction conversation and to be a resource and a network. For writers and scholars and teachers uh, and, and uh, students and readers, uh, a place where we can think critically about what it is we do. And I think that's really important because I don't think that the creative has to be separated from the critical. I think uh, those are can very much work together. It doesn't, we don't have to be in different spheres. Uh, one informs the other and supports the other.
0: I agree completely. I, I love that a essay exists to talk about craft and scholarship and, and not just the what are we writing, but how are we writing it and how are we putting sentences together and what does it mean to craft creative nonfiction? These are all really important questions. And what's amazing is that there is a place for that conversation to happen. It really,
1: Karen has done a wonderful job of creating that place for the conversation to happen, and also of being welcoming to different ways of having that conversation. Right, mm-hmm. and, and 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 breaking down boundaries between you know, creativity is it, it, it's a, it can be an elusive, magical thing, but it doesn't have to be, especially especially if we're thinking of writing as craft. If it's a craft, and we have a a daily practice that we do. We can think about that practice. We can think about how we do it, how we teach it, how we examine it, how we investigate it. And I, I, I think also for me being a managing editor, I really like the aspect of um, inviting different voices to the conversation. We want a diverse, we have a call out right now for diversity in nonfiction, which will be our spring issue focus. And I I love the idea that we're trying to be inclusive in terms of uh, scholarship and pedagogy and ways of thinking about nonfiction. Mm. And I cultivate a a series called In the Classroom. uh, And that series is a weekly series and um, trying to build a resource for teachers of favorite essays to teach and also for readers of writers um To read and why, and mm-hmm. creating that network has been uh, really satisfying and interesting.
0: I'm so glad that you mentioned in the
1: classroom it's
0: it's one of the places and parts of a essay that I like to check in with regularly, not only when I'm reading new nonfiction or reading authors that I'm unfamiliar with, but also to discover things that I read in my own undergraduate writing studies that maybe I haven't returned to in a long time. And so there are essays in there that are spoken of and and why we teach them and how we teach them uh, that are such a, a gift to then come back to and
1: read. I'm so grateful to hear that. Thank you.
0: I'm curious what you're
1: devouring these days. Oh, I, I've i been writing a lot of uh, book reviews this year. I'm so excited about this year because I um, made a commitment on Goodreads to read 50 books this year. And I am far shy of my goal. And part of that goal has also been writing book reviews. And I um, actually, I wrote a, a book review of Karen Babine's um, book Water and What We Know, Following the Roots of a Northern Life, Mm -hmm. and loved that book. In a different vein, I didn't write a book review of it, but I gobbled up uh, Joe Scott Coe's book, teacher at Point Blank, and right now I'm reading a book by Jules Evans called Philosophy for Life and Other Dangerous Situations, and Evans is talking about the Greek philosophers and how they would or do apply to contemporary life. And I'm so far I'm loving that book. I probably shouldn't talk about it too soon because I'm only halfway <laughs> through. <laughs>
0: that sounds so wonderful though.
1: And then the other thing I've been gobbling up is um, craft books. I have just, I've sort of been collecting craft books and I think it's that urge from my own writing perspective to have a daily practice of craft. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think it's something I'll implement for twenty sixteen. Maybe not every day, but every week, trying to practice another exercise. Mm,
0: I love that. I can't wait to to hear more about the ones you choose and and the books that find their way into
1: your world. I was thinking of setting up a a goal of exercises and maybe mapping them out ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Trying to exercise those those muscles something with point of view, something with description, something just back to the basics, I think.
0: I love that. I think so often we get caught up in writing what we write that we don't always go back and take a workshop or take a class or set up a practice for ourselves of stretching those muscles and, and exploring new ways. And, and so that I love that. I think that's really wonderful.
1: Don't you think it's so important that we, I just wrote, I've been working on an essay. Um, it's about, I've had uh, shoulder problems and I realized, I felt like, you know, I've read, I've written this essay before. This is an essay about the body and about pain. It's not really a new essay for me. And it was almost, it's certainly a new experience. And I, and I'm in rehab from for my shoulder for adhesive capsulitis and frozen shoulder and a torn rotator cuff, all of these challenges, but essentially when I turned to the page to write about it, I felt like I've already I've written this kind of body essay. How might I approach this in a, in a different way that would mix it up?
0: You know what I mean? Absolutely, I do, absolutely. And I, I think that's so important because that allows us to find new ways of having these important conversations so that they don't get stale. One of the things that I always love is saying, oh, I I really love writing by so-and-so, but sometimes it feels like I'm just reading the same thing. And then to come across something they've written and have it be completely different. And that is, that's such a gift as a reader. And so to cultivate that as a writer, I wanna give that to my readers.
1: I, I agree, and it's about taking risk. It's about entering new territory that's mm-hmm. unknown. Mm-hmm. And, and and certainly it's about trying to kind of break down a comfort zone.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I
1: remember I had a professor, um, Robert Ferguson, he taught a course on crime and punishment in American literature. And he, he did two wonderful, he did many wonderful things, but he, one of the things he did in his course is he announced to this undergraduate course, probably 50 people in the room. And he said, one day, one of you will publish a book, probably more than one, but definitely one of you will publish a book. And I just thought, that was so inspiring. I decided he was speaking directly to me <laughs> and, 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 and that I was going to be that person. But the other thing he said is that some authors write the same book over and over and over mm-hmm. and don't be that kind of author. <laughs> and this was a literature course. We were studying literature and it was the kind of course that really taught us how to be writers because of the way we were studying literature and I just love that don't write the same book don't get comfortable don't write the same book over and over Mm, absolutely which isn't to say that we can't address the same like do you find this in your writing that there there are certain issues that I spiral around oh absolutely right so it's the same kind of it's not that we shouldn't approach those same conundrums right Mm-hmm. It's just, what if we approach them in a kind of exciting, scary, different way?
0: I, I, absolutely. And I think that's really important because when we take the time to look at a theme or a subject from a different angle, we're also going to learn more about it for ourselves and for our own writing. Not just bringing something new and interesting to our readers. But we're really going to have a chance to say, well, wow, I have a totally different perspective on this now. I didn't realize this, or I wasn't sure about this. And now when I tell this story in a new way, I see something radically different.
1: And I and I see that I may have had a blind spot that I didn't even know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and I think that way of going... Deeper really calls to me and I, I I guess my my desire to return to basic craft exercises is a way to try to go deeper into those spaces that you 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 articulate it so well too
0: thank you. I'd love to give you a chance to share a piece of parting wisdom for listeners.
1: I think one of the things I really think about is to Read widely, to read widely and with an open heart. Mm. And another thing I think about is when one takes a writing workshop or uh, submits to a literary journal is not to be a jerk. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like be professional and um, and also, there are many, many people who don't have the opportunity to do what we do. So there's a certain gratitude that I think has to be front and center. Mm-hmm. and i I think the other thing I've thought about a lot, especially recently, is that the the urgency the urgency really needs to be on the page it doesn't need to be in my worry or my fear or my you know endless thoughts about how this or that aspect of the writing should go i just need to return to the page and do the work and that's where the urgency needs to be i love that absolutely i also think it's really important to keep heart you know i mean it's not it it is it is tough, it's tough to receive rejection and it's um, it's tough to kind of keep going, especially when parts of the writing process can feel um, sort of like this long tunnel. So I, I think for that aspect too, I think it's really important that a writer has uh, support network and a pet mm. and uh, you know <laughs> preferably a rescue a rescue cat or a rescue dog mm-hmm. uh, a, a network of self care not not you know not to be too i mean you you need to show up, you need to do the work we need to we need to have fortitude but we we also need to care for ourselves and keep our hearts open mm-hmm. definitely, that's so great.
0: Renee, it has been so wonderful to have you on the show today. I'm just so grateful that you said yes, and we
1: could make this time together. Sarah, I'm so grateful to talk with you. It's been such a pleasure, and I'm I'm so impressed. I loved listening to Maggie Messett's, um podcast. Her her book, um, The Rainy Season. I didn't know about it. I'm so excited to read that book. I really and and I'm so delighted that you asked me to talk because i really feel i've had this you know i want to speak up and then i want to go high <laughs> and then i'm uh, you know mm-hmm. scared and ashamed and then i want to make art and i just i just love that you asked me and that we were able to talk today i'm so impressed with your your work and your podcasts and what you're doing thank you Thank
0: you so much that makes my little heart grow three sizes bigger <laughs> it means a lot it's um it is It is absolutely the work that matters the most to me in the world. And um, so it really, it's all about making time and space for it. It's it's really wonderful. I'm just so glad that we could make this happen. If listeners want to learn more about you and all your work, they can find you online at reneedow.com. You are listening to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. I'm so glad you're a part of the In Her Room community. Without listeners like you, the show would not be possible. On our website, in-her-room.com, you'll find show notes, learn how to work with me, and have an opportunity to contribute financially to keep In Her Room on the air. This episode concludes Season 1 of In Her Room. The show will return in March 2016, featuring interviews with more incredible women writers, editors, agents, and publishers. I'm Sarah Blackthorne. Let's tell our stories together.